1: Welcome back to the podcast, Recovery Sort Of. I'm Jason. I'm a guy who doesn't use substances that are illegal or, (laughs) I don't know, I I guess I'm called in long-term recovery. I have no idea. Whatever it is, I'm here with (laughs) Billy.
0: Hi, my name is Billy. I'm also a person in long-term recovery and what that means for me is that I haven't used any illegal drugs or alcohol since August 23rd of 2000 and and
1: we started there with the the strange wording because we got asked uh you know what does it mean to be in long-term recovery what are the qualifications and i i honestly had no fucking clue i'm like i don't know is there it's it's very much like what does it mean to be a newcomer right i i don't know that there's a set answer um And so we we talked a little bit about it and I don't like the set answer of describing what it means to me. So I'm just going to make up random shit from now on, I think.
0: Yeah. And and so there's a what you can go through is like recovery language training uh, that they have. That is basically ways that you can talk about your recovery that is relatable to non addicts. That is language that's more common. You know, we all have our common language inside of our fellowships, things we might say within our particular meetings or groups, and they, you know, might not sound as good or may actually sound fairly stigmatizing outside of those groups. And so, as you go out into the world and try to, if you were to try to talk to people and come out of anonymity, you can go through some kind of Language coaching—they call it coaching, not training—but you can go through some language coaching on words you can use. And so, in talking to someone about what that means, that long-term recovery piece, um, they explained to me that, you know, if you go through the coaching, they explain to you that, you know, you would normally say I'm a person in long-term recovery, and then a second piece of that that's really important is what that means to you. And what that means to me is whatever your pathway is. Um, because again, different people on different pathways, that description of recovery means something different it to a person in an abstinence based program. Obviously we think it means you're abstinent. Um, but to people on different, you know, maybe replacement therapies or, you know, maintenance programs or whatever, you know, they have a different meaning of what recovery is for them.
1: Right. And then we, we fooled with the wording and we talked about <laughs> minor mood-altering drugs and or minor mood-altering substances and not being on them for a certain amount of time. And then, you know, I mean, obviously, Snickers commercials let you know that food affects your mood <laughs> and is a mood-altering substance. So I, I don't know how to describe it. Uh, uh, maybe one day we'll tackle what is recovery in, yeah. in a podcast. I.
0: And I've had a couple surgeries where I took pain medication for short periods of time. And it's definitely altered my mind. Right.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Altered my feeling, my perception. Mm -hmm. Um, So who knows? Maybe we'll figure that out one day, how to talk about ourselves. But I agree. uh, We do need other language because I can't generally just go out into the professional world and say, I'm an addict named Jason, which is comfortable in my, you know, program. I definitely can't run around and talk about, hey, I'm a sex addict named Jason, right? Like <laughs> right. that would be weird as shit to a lot of people. Um, well, and I had
0: a weird incident. I'm gonna share this where I accidentally used, if you can do that. So um I don't know if I ever told you the story, but we, uh, a bunch of friends of ours, we were all out at a restaurant for dinner, and I'll try to keep it brief. You know, we were all out to dinner at this restaurant. The restaurant took this exceptionally long time to bring our food out. So we finally got our food. We got our dinner at the end. They brought out this big tray of desserts, and they said, here, you know, this is... You know, compliments of us for the long wait for your food. We're really sorry. And they brought it. And this was all people in recovery that Mm. were at this thing. And so we're all sitting around, and there's these different, you know, cakes and desserts. And there's this thing that's like a, and I should have recognized, I mean, in hindsight, it seems kind of stupid, but it was like one of those tall, skinny shot glasses Uh. full of like an orange cream, what looked Mm -hmm. like an orange cream thing with like some orange cream and then some foam stuff on the top. And, I love orange cream sickles are my favorite. So I was like, oh, yeah, that looks good. And I grabbed it and drank it. And it had some kind of alcohol in it. You know, it was definitely a shot of something or still whatever. A class, really? I, yeah. And I said, whoa, that had alcohol. And then the rest of the trip, everyone laughed and said, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. We won't tell anybody that you used <laughs> Um, so I accidentally used one
1: time. From now on, he's uh, Billy, and he's in medium term recovery. <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> I'm in recovery as long as I'm not in Las Vegas.
1: Right. There you go. That'll work. Uh, so to to recap um, the anonymity episode last week, we got a little bit of feedback on that. Uh, mostly positive people seem to enjoy it, but, but there were some other opinions. I don't know that they deviated, but I'd like to go over them anyway. Uh, Brittany on Twitter said that she sees all the arguments um, and that she'd love to be less anonymous in her personal life on Facebook and at work, The problem she runs into is that she works with the wife of a DEA agent, and it's kind of intimidating. And I I was like, fuck, uh, okay, so here I am talking all this shit about how I feel called to be anonymous. How anonymous would I be if I worked with a DEA agent Mm. or, you know, their spouse? That would be a little intimidating for me as well.
0: Yeah, I I think, and I would look at it as an opportunity to share with them about and i hate to say it this way but how wrong the dea agents are (laughs) and busting all the addicts like it's one thing to go after you know high high level dealers and things like that but when you're out you know busting the guy on the street who's just trying to get high another day that's a little bit ridiculous but whatever that that would be me
1: that's hilarious right because i i I mean i for one, I don't think the, the highest level dealer is probably the government. So I don't even want to get into that <laughs> yeah. conversation. But she she did mention later in the conversation that uh, she thought maybe if, you know, the lady's wife saw what she looked like, um, or the individual's wife saw what an addict looked like in recovery, it might broaden their view. And so a similar yeah, to thinking, you know, she thought it might help. Um Doreen mentioned that she always thought it was respecting others' anonymity and vice versa. So maybe that like the whole anonymity piece was really less about us to begin with and more about, and we kind of explored that concept. We talked a little bit about how anonymity was more really doing selfless service. It's not so much about, Hey, let me not talk about, you know, what I do and what has helped me in my life. It's more about the fact that, you know, I do service and I don't need recognition for it. And This is another take on it that, you know, when we talk about being anonymous, it's letting other people stay there anonymous. It's not so much that I need to go into the world and be anonymous. Right, right. Um, Let love be your fire, which is always a fun name on Twitter. (laughs) I love when people have crazy names. Uh, She said, I don't think it is ever okay to share if someone else is in your recovery group or meeting. But if a person wants to tell their journey in sobriety, then that's their business. Uh, And she said she makes it out to be similar to HIPAA in the medical field. Um yeah, I guess it is a little similar to the medical field. The one thing I would say the medical field it's more of a, a legal standpoint, um, which of course we, we don't have in our meetings. That's more of a, a personal, hey, follow this silent code or or not so silent code. Um but even even in the medical field, right? And and working sort of in a place that follows HIPAA guidelines as I am right now, I don't know how much that actually gets followed, whether it's a legal issue or not. I mean, granted, I don't think a lot of it's getting spread, but I I can see the, the pull and tendency to break those in minor ways, not in harmful ways or ways that are supposed to be malicious. But I do see that like, there's a tendency to want to, Oh my God, I saw your friend at the doctor's office. Like that's none of your business. Right. Right. It's, we have a tendency as humans to want to know things about people and talk about
0: things that we know. Yeah. Or in just seeking, uh, advice outside of the doctor's office, like, Oh, a person is going through this or someone's going through that and sharing about what's going on with them to try to get, additional supports maybe from home or their family or maybe some of their medical issues coming from issues at their home, you know, it's like you can actually give someone in at times better care by breaking their anonymity, you know, if you know, they're in an unhealthy situation or whatever.
1: Right. Right. And so, and that's why there is the kind of rules, uh, you know, about mandated reporting in certain situations, because you, in order to give proper care, you do need to break someone's anonymity. Right. Um, April shared that she can share her story and that does make her a little vulnerable to any stigma. Um, but she accepts that when she engages in that kind of conversation, uh, that she is going to be vulnerable to stigma. And so she says to her final answer is basically, if she feels her story is going to help someone struggling, then she's doing it. Um, and I respect that. I think I would say everybody that said, Hey, I, I need to have a little bit of, you know anonymity in my life to protect some professional field in some way shape or form i don't think any of them would not share to help somebody suffering that they ran into on the street right i think that's like we're kind of we got the message on that one right if somebody's hurting and struggling we're going to share willing to talk about it um so that's really cool at least that that we we haven't missed the boat on that one yeah (laughs) yeah um here's one pro-choice recovery Says anonymity is a choice that people deserve. Like with any health issue, it's a privacy issue, she said. In her treatment community, anonymity was not respected, and it caused her some harm. And I really, I responded to that. I was, I truly, I wanted to know more about that, really, because I, it was a. Uh, it was contrary to what where I was at that moment when we were talking about anonymity I'm like yeah fuck it we need to fight stigma and all be not anonymous right yeah. and and so to hear that it caused someone harm I, I wanted to know more about that probably to judge it, yeah. <laughs> is, it valid is it really harm, harm? <laughs> is it valid enough right. harm that I can change my opinion like I don't know but I, I thought that was interesting can you think of a situation where someone might be harmed by anonymity not being respected
0: Uh, Yeah. I mean, it's almost the type of things that you had said. So I was a teenager at the time, but I had, you know, basically got fired from a job because, so I, and this goes way back. I worked for a company that did like professional cleaning at nights of buildings when the buildings closed. Mm -hmm. And some of the buildings that we worked in were banks. Um, And I got high and ran around with The son of one of the kid I mean the son of one of the guys that was some kind of high up in one of these banks. I actually seen his office and would see his nameplate on there and shit. And he told the people, like, I know who that kid is and he does drugs and I don't want him in my bank. And so they fired me. Wow. (laughs) You know? And so that was a negative. I mean, now at the time I wasn't in recovery. So I don't know if that exactly relates, but it's, you know, someone knew who I was because of my public. I mean, he didn't know that I wasn't in recovery at that time. He just knew of my past and made a judgment decision and got me fired from a job for that.
1: Yeah. Okay. So I I can see how that would hurt. Right. Um, I don't, yeah. I don't know how that would be different if you were in recovery or I guess slightly different that this guy wasn't like in a recovery program with you um, and then telling your business, but I could see, I'm sure there's ways it can do harm. I just, I guess for me, the harm of not getting a job. I think that's part of what we need to fight by being open, right? Right. The fact that we need to stop denying people jobs because they have some history of, of mistakes in their life. So Kim said, I maintain anonymity for the most part when I was actively practicing. uh, And I, I think that was as a doctor, I believe now I'm open about my addiction and depression in the hopes that more people realize these are diseases. However, I strictly maintain everyone's anonymity. And so that's an interesting take. Uh, you know, having, feeling the need to be anonymous during your active, you know, professional period of your life. But then once you move past that, maybe then you get to step up and and be the guy who can, uh, advocate because it's no longer going to affect your career or your monetary intake in any way.
0: Yeah. And, and I don't know how this exactly relates career wise, but, um, You know, we had a funny conversation around my office the other day. You know, one of the people in the office brought up, you know, just out of conversation, like, "Oh, if weed was legal, you know, when they when they finally get it all the way legal, like, will you do it?" And you know, a couple of the people were like, "Oh, yeah," and you know, whatever. And then I was like, "Well, no." And then we kind of went down that road of like, I said, "Yeah, if we if weed was legal, and I started doing it, um." it would be like, well, today's a boring day. So I think I'm going to go get high. And you know, oh, it's too busy today. I think I'm going to go get high. (laughs) And then it would turn into if you guys need me, I'll be out in my car in the parking lot (laughs) getting high. And I said, so that's why even if it's legal, I can't do it, you know. And so those are ways that I now I didn't go into a big diatribe of, you know, I'm an addict, and I'm a person in long term recovery. (laughs) And what that means to me is I have, you know, I didn't go into all that. But it's just, You know, it was that thing. And and I have told him, like, I had a drug problem. I used to, you know, use too much. I can't control my using. Like, those kind of things that any smart person would be like, that's addiction. You know, like, I don't don't specifically start, again, using this uh, language that we're used to hearing in meetings and stuff to describe myself. But in that conversation, that's an opportunity for me to let them know, like, yes, I used to use excessively all the time and it's a problem for me. And so I just don't do it at all today because I can't manage it well.
1: Hmm. That's interesting that we can point. But I wonder, does that make people think that people should just get better or or that does that perpetuate the stereotype of you should just pull yourself up by your bootstraps? I work with the guy, Billy. He did it right. He used to have a problem and, and he just shared that he doesn't. He hasn't had that problem in a long time, but you didn't share how you did it. So I wonder if that jades their opinion <laughs> of what it takes to to fix yourself, I guess, in their eyes.
0: Yeah, I'm not sure. And interestingly, so one of the other people in the office said, you know, exactly that. Like, yeah, I used to do all this stuff when I was young and then I just got older and I just stopped. And people used to tell me all the time, you know, they didn't understand how I wasn't an addict. But, you know, and They were like, I don't know how I wasn't either. I just, I did all these things and then I just stopped and got (laughs) married and moved on with my life and stopped doing all those things. And You know, I don't know. Maybe I should share that. I have a little bit of a weird situation at my work where I have relationships with people that it's like I worry more about if I break my anonymity, it's going to break the anonymity of some other people around me. That's my biggest concern. It's not necessarily for myself. I wouldn't care personally. Right. It's that it would then sort of start a chain reaction of how some of us that work there know each other, how we uh, have these relationships outside, you know, why we get together regularly, right, <laughs> you know, right, and right. things like that. And I feel like <laughs> if I started saying some of those things, it would you know, yeah,
1: we meet up once a week, for an hour. <laughs>
0: yeah, it would indirectly, you know, fall on to some other people that I work with. So that's my biggest concern of why I haven't.
1: That's interesting. I, I've always hated the idea of when I, uh, run into somebody that, um, you know, I've met through the rooms or meetings or, or some <laughs> weird place, you know, even some people I, I've, I've had people ask where I met people that I met in prison and it's <laughs> like, uh, I don't really want to put other people's business out there like that. So mm-hmm. they're always like, oh, where'd you guys meet? And I'm like, ah, oh, man, you know what? It's been so long. I don't remember. That's like my go-to standard for it. But I definitely remember the first time somebody asked me that and me just standing there with like my mouth <laughs> open, <laughs> yeah. like, I don't fucking know what yeah. to say here. Um, there was an answer. This one guy, uh, addictivist, who I, I like his name. Um, he mentioned that it was a good episode and he didn't give an opinion on anonymity. But it just so happened that when he was listening, for some reason, it, like, cut out right in the middle of the episode. And he, he was picturing, like, we were driving off a cliff and, like, uploaded this at the last minute as we were, like, fatally, you know, <laughs> falling to our deaths. And I just, I don't know. That made me <laughs> hilariously laugh. And now I think we need to have, like, a a partially done podcast loaded at all times for that moment when I'm about to die <laughs> so I can just <laughs> it load it started. up at the last second. Um, and then let your let love be your fire again, had another comment that just said in the beginning of sobriety, they wanted to keep their anonymity because of the shame. And as they went on, they started telling people about it because of struggles and they never knew who it might help, who was struggling. And I think we had another sentiment to that pretty similar last week. Um, And I I like that idea. It's it's like the opposite of what happened to me, I guess almost, but it's pretty neat that people are opening up to the idea of, and somebody said to me, like it's humility. Right. You, you're becoming more humble to the fact of fuck how it affects me if it helps other people.
0: yes, yeah. Or I neat. take the humility to be. I mean, I interpret humility as that is just who I am. Like that is just a part of my story. Yeah. Just like I have, you know, brown hair or whatever, you know, and and different people overcome all kinds of different challenges, You know, whether it be some sort of abuse or neglect or trauma in their life and just having the humility and courage to share that, you know, experience with other people is, you know, the act of humility.
1: And I I think this kind of spurs us into possibly today's topic, which we didn't mention earlier. (laughs) on. I guess we should have. But what is addiction and where does it come from? Right. And. While so the people who are judging people who used to be addicts or who are addicts that don't use drugs anymore, or however you want to state these these things, the people who are judging it must have some certain belief about what is addiction in order to feel that way. Right. If you believe addiction is a disease right in line with a cancer, then you're not going to say people who are in recovery from addiction can't work as a nurse or can't come into my house to clean it because well, they have a disease, right? But they're they're getting treatment for it. But if you tend to believe that addiction is a lack of willpower and you're a sucky ass human who just wants to do terrible things, well, now I need to judge you and keep you out of these environments because you're just going to fuck it up at some point. Hmm. Is that fair to say? Or
0: Yeah. And I think another problem is most people that are you know anti-addict especially nowadays it you know the, the attitude of like lock them up and throw away the key isn't as as publicly tolerated as it used to be hmm. so a lot of people will say that behind closed doors they won't say that openly right. or out in the public so you don't necessarily get to see where they're coming from
1: it's just know. the entire belief of the law enforcement
0: agency <laughs> It's not openly you know, spread about as much. Yeah, so I, and I have thought about the law enforcement a lot because in, in my little bit of research on a couple different topics with law enforcement, homelessness and different crimes, um, a typical maybe justification, it isn't fair to say justification, but one of the things with law enforcement is they don't make the laws. You know what I mean? The police don't make the laws. Right. Their job is to enforce the laws. And just like at my job, you know, there are some things, some policies or decisions that we make that might not be the same decisions I would make if I was 100% in charge. But that's not my job. I'm not, you know, it's not my company to make those decisions. My job is to do the job that my boss has established for me to do. And so for law enforcement, you know, whether they think addiction is a disease or not, it's still a crime, you know, using is a crime, possession is a crime, paraphernalia is a crime. And so when they find you with these things, their job is to arrest you.
1: It it is, but it's kind of how the system of checks and balances works, right? Um, While they don't make the laws, all right, I get this, the legislative branch does, I kind of, I sort of remember the the (laughs) high school version of this, right? Um, They also have the choice of how they want to enforce it, Right. What is our belief systems and how do we feel about this? And if it's not working, let's just stop fucking enforcing it. Jaywalking, for instance, which is a finable illegal offense in a lot of places. At some point, they said, this is fucking dumb. It's not working. It's not useful. We're going to stop doing it. Right. Mm -hmm. Loitering and stuff. uh, The only time they use that anymore is when they can use it to get rid of homeless people. (laughs) Right. Right. It's not that they really believe that it's a fucking problem with society that they need to enforce it's used as a tool to kind of screw over people who are struggling in these other areas and so while mm-hmm. i agree with you that they don't make the laws the the fact that it's so prevalent of a belief system within their you know entity they use the laws to enforce them in a way that is malicious towards this group of people and so if they chose to say if say the police force took on the the opinion that addiction really did needed to be treated and not jailed. Right. Uh, they could stop locking up people who were, they could just stop doing it. They could stop catching people, you know, right. quotes, catching people uh, with, with drugs yeah, and, and things would change
0: somehow. Some of those things are starting to happen. Um, I know, you know, they're our local town police here in, we're in the town of Elkton. I don't know if it's okay to say that, but you know, they have been receptive to some of these ideas. I don't know that they're being, you know, mm-hmm. implemented implemented hard and fast, but they are talking to people in the recovery community and connecting with the advocacy groups in the community. So they are, if nothing else, they're at least hearing this information and being open to, you know, some of the harm reduction ideas, some of the ideas on compassionate care, um, getting people connected with the right resources in the community, rather than just locking them up and throwing them in jail. So it is slowly starting to creep in to law enforcement. (laughs) Yeah. And and look, I don't
1: think that every law enforcement officer or agent or, or person who works with them believes this, right? I just think as a majority belief uh in that culture this is and 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 i'm not saying it's an unreasonable belief unreasonable belief for what they have to deal with right this is something they got to deal with every day that is disturbing the lives of people who aren't committing crime all around it right and so I, i get it there's probably a lot of frustration around it it probably does seem easier to like hey let's just get them off the street and out of our hair um So I don't want to think this is a public criticism of law enforcement itself. Right. I just know that every group has acts on the way it believes. Um, Kind of like when in Baltimore City, not that long ago, they were the police still said, no, we're going to continue to lock people up for for, you know, amounts of marijuana. But then the prosecutor said, we're just not going to prosecute. Like, so even though it's not the prosecutor's job to decide whether it's illegal or whether they get locked up or not, like every entity can take a stance on what they are going to do within their belief system. The prosecutor said, we're not going to prosecute it over time. The police will stop locking people up for it. Right. It's just one of those things. They all influence each other based on their belief system. And so I would definitely, I would venture to say that I believe the the belief system in, you know, uh, our our executive branch or or police system or politics in general is that maybe addiction isn't a disease. Maybe it comes from some other thing that people need to have more control over or that people who have it are bad people. I'm not sure exactly what the belief is or if they've even gone far enough to think what is addiction and what Mm -hmm. is my belief about it? But it's gotta be something like that because if you, if they believed addiction was a disease, they wouldn't act on it the way they do. It wouldn't be, we're not going to give out Narcan, fuck them, let them die, right? Like, that wouldn't be the sentiment of the people if they believed it was a disease. So...
0: Yeah, it's easy to throw it into this, you know, moral failing category. It's, it's, you know, it, and I hate to lump it in with, like, I think poverty gets that same, you know, lumped into that same thing. Oh, if you're poor, you're just lazy, and you just don't want to work, and you just... You know, it's it's easy to uh, I think it's easier to judge and criticize people than it is to have compassion and feel powerlessness when you see other people suffering, you know, um, for me personally, like I can say. This is a weird reaction that I have, but when my kids, let's say they're running across the porch and carrying something and they fall down and hurt themselves. My immediate reaction is to get angry at them and yes. be like, why the hell were you running across the porch like that carrying something? You know, you know, you're just setting yourself up to be hurt.
1: Right.
0: Whereas the correct emotional response should be like compassion and empathy. Right. You know, but it's like, I don't like feeling those things. So I react with anger. And I think we get the same thing. Maybe I'm giving people way more credit than they deserve. But, you know, I like to think that a lot of people, when they see, you know, the homeless drug addict or the young, you know, prostitute out on the street, that their underlying feeling is compassion and remorse. But they're so there's. They feel so powerless in that situation that it's easier just to be angry and blame that person than it is to realize that we live in a society that is pretty sick right now, right. <laughs> you know? No, I think
1: you're making a great point. Uh, I definitely get angry with my kids, not because they're hurt. Like I'm sad that they're hurt. I'm angry because I can't fix it, right? right? I can't do anything about it. I'm powerless, like you just said. And in order to accept that, I I don't want to, right? I want to deny my powerlessness and say my power was that you should have not been a fucking idiot, right? Right. (laughs) Like you should have not ran with scissors. Now you're stabbed. What's wrong with you, right? You're the problem. This is why it's not my fault. Like, it's like I'm trying to avoid the blame of it when really there was no blame. I'm,
0: I'm just powerless. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of people that see like homelessness and they will... They can't fix it? Yeah, they can't fix it. So what they'd rather do is just push homeless people out of their neighborhood somewhere where they don't have to see it. Mm. And then when they don't have to see it. Now it doesn't hurt. Now it doesn't seem to be a problem that needs to be addressed. That makes sense. So
1: we're going to tackle where addiction comes from. What is addiction? Right after we play our Voices ad, we'll be right back.
0: This episode has been brought to you by Voices of Hope, Inc., a nonprofit grassroots recovery community organization located in Maryland. Voices of Hope is made up of people in recovery, family members, and allies. Together, members strive to protect the dignity and respect of those that use drugs and those in recovery by advocating for treatment, support resources, and mentoring. Please visit us at www.voicesofhopececilmd.org and consider donating to our cause. All right, we're back and uh
1: jumping jumping back into what is addiction, where does it come from? We did ask this question this week and we got a few answers for it. Um so back to back to Twitter addictivist said he thinks addiction is a behavior that seemed to work, a solution, um the, the whole craving, dope-sick, shaking concept of addiction, that's just dependency, right? That's yeah. not really addiction. Physical dependency, yeah. Um, and he said that that's how he accounts for the positive and negative addiction anyhow. And then he mentioned, you know, people that have better precision-guided definitions. But I, I don't know. What's, what's your take on that? Uh, do you think it's just a behavior that seems to work? I know some in, in the social work field would definitely say it's just like any other coping skill. Uh-huh.
0: Yeah, and the more sort of research and the more education I get on the subject of addiction, um the more it begins to get I would say clouded on what the definition of that is. Um I for a long time I believed that you know, it was everyone that was an addict suffered some sort of trauma or pain or whatever and you know, similar to the idea you just talked about that you know, addiction was the coping mechanism for that, that it was the, the getting rid of that pain or dealing with that emotional pain that, you know, caused them to seek drugs to an excessive point. Um, but I don't know that I agree with that as much anymore because there is a physical dependence part that comes in where I've heard the stories of people that, you know, Their lives seemed good and fine up until the point that they got a physical injury, and then they got on some sort of pain medication, and then before they know it, they were addicted, you know, I guess you would say physically addicted to that, and then, you know, it just progressed from there, so... That sort of shot my original hypothesis out of the water.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I don't know, though. So I I would say those people probably are definitely speaking out of a, a belief of where they are at that moment, which there's no saying that's right or wrong. I'm not arguing that point, but... Someone who says, I grew up with a very normal childhood. My parents stayed together, this, that, and the other. That was also my story, right? And for a long time, I believed, oh, yeah, trauma, what? My parents weren't divorced. I don't even have any fucking excuse to use, right? It made me kind of miserable that all these other people were like, oh, my mother was an addict, and she never fucking came home, and and that's why I Mm. ended up using drugs, because my father drank, and he beat me, and I'm like, I didn't have this story. Like, I don't have anything. My parents loved me. It was great. But the longer I stayed clean, the more I got an idea that maybe it wasn't as great as I thought it was, right? Um, and, and this took a real long time to get to. I'm talking, like, very recently did I learn even more about my childhood that gave me it gave me a different outlook on how it was, right? Maybe it wasn't as rosy as I thought it was. And so I just mm-hmm. think that that's definitely a take on, like, you know, we can get taught some things. I don't know who didn't grow up with the idea of uh, uh quick crying or I'll give you something to cry about. Right? right. But that is like one of the most toxic traumatizing fucking statements <laughs> yeah. you can tell a right. child. And so if this person that you heard share that is growing up with this kind of upbringing, right. With this toxic information and talking about, Oh, it was a great childhood. My parents love me. Right. They sent me to high school and college. Uh, th- that might not be so accurate, I guess, is what I'm just getting at here.
0: Yeah. And I guess uh, every, I mean, Anyone who's alive past the age of, you know, 10 has probably suffered some sort of trauma in their life, you know, to some level or another. I mean, obviously, you know, the trauma might be different for the child who lost a pet, say a dog or a hamster or whatever, versus a child that's been incredibly abused. Um, But we've all had these traumas. And I don't know how you can signify or or pick out, you know, which person's going to turn to drugs to alleviate that trauma Mm. and which ones are just going to grow up and learn the more healthy coping mechanisms for those things.
1: Well, and then then we get into the other conversation around addiction, right? Are we just talking about drugs? Because if I look at quite a few people in the world, I would say they're there's a lot of maladaptive coping skills going on. Maybe drug use is one of the most maladaptive. Like it's more easy to see from the outside, the unmanageability of it. But there's a lot of people who are living in tons of debt because shopping is their way to cope, right? There's people who are visiting strip clubs every night because sex is their way to cope, or maybe not even visiting strip clubs at this point in time, the phone and and phone (laughs) hub is, is, you know, universal. Um, But just wasting hours of their life doing that in order to cope or eating. Obviously, we have an obesity problem in the United States, right? Food is readily available and we use it for comfort early on. We're taught to use that as a coping skill. And so I guess what I'm getting at here, uh, jumping from relationship to relationship, right? Not to beat the dead horse, but a lot of people are using coping skills that maybe aren't really healthy. They just might not be as obvious Outwardly, as the drug addiction coping skill, and so I don't know if any of us are getting this real great coping skill. Maybe we're all fucked up from early on and doing it wrong.
0: Well, and there's another difference to addiction, like a drug addiction, that it has what I believe to be a much more obvious social impact on mm-hmm. the community around you. Typically, drug addicts, you know, end up being homeless. They end up being, you know, the people committing the crimes in the area, you know, they're affiliated with, you know, the drug dealing and violence that goes on in a lot of communities. So, you know, you don't, at least surface wise, again, there are some underlying issues with people that have a food addiction, like the impacts they have on our healthcare system and things like that, they get easily ignored. Um, But you don't typically see like the I mean at least I don't know maybe they do but sex addicts aren't necessarily robbing the guy down the street to feed their sex addiction. I'm sure some of them do but right. you know it's not as common I wouldn't think as addicts. So I think society has a much harsher view of drug addicts because there is a visual impact on the community around you, you know, that you see that that is right. there
1: right, the visual
0: impact, and you
1: can blame it for, you know, costing your tax dollars that you work hard to pay, and they're not and all that. So yeah, I get it. I just, uh that is an interesting tape that it's a coping skill and and trying to figure out if people just believe that it's a coping skill, or, or if we believe it's something else, if we still believe it's a disease. Uh, moving on to Lizzie, she said that, for me, it's something that worked until it didn't. Uh For her, what she felt like was that it made her better and prettier and funnier except that really in reality it wasn't um and what it ended up doing was making her angrier and more sad and and more lonely and uh she asked you know she posed the question do i have the gene and she said probably but it doesn't run her life today um and so that brings up the is it a genetic right is this something that's in our biology that wires us to seek drugs what's your take on that
0: um, I think it's both I think it's there's a genetic component that we're pretty sure about <laughs> at this point right. um, but that not everyone that has those genetics will become you know an addict some people will grow up with the healthy coping skills and some of us don't yeah it is interesting <laughs> like the
1: study they did where they took the children who were born from uh parents who struggled with addiction and then raised completely by somebody else uh, through adoption and to see that the the biological component reflected back, like, I think it's one in eight if you had one parent and one in four, which is 25% if it, both your parents had drug addiction in their uh, history. And so, I mean, does that completely prove that it's biological? I No, but that does give a strong component to it, right? That these people never even had to deal with their biological parents and yet still came out with the same problem one in four times. That's a, that's a lot.
0: Yeah. And in the book, uh, The Realm of Hungry Ghosts, there's a lot of data. He does some pretty deep dives into some different research and data on those types of studies. Um, The twin studies, the adoption studies, and things that they've done on the genetic side of addiction Um, and the general point that he has at the end based on, and this is a medical doctor who's researching this data. Most of this stuff, like I've tried to look at that data afterwards and it's so scientifically written. I don't understand it a lot of times. Um, So it's like, even in trying to like, Oh, okay. I can go to this study and read this study. And then it doesn't make any sense to me. So unfortunately I have to rely on smarter people to interpret this stuff for me Mm -hmm. and explain it in a way that I can understand it in English. And so his take is it has more to do with like the epigenetics. Like it's, there is some genetic components, but environment affects our genetics. Right. Right. I would, I would buy into that. Um, to move a little further, Robin
1: just pointed me to a link, uh, which was interesting. It's a very governmental link that just sort of explains addiction. Definitely not what I was looking for when I posted this question, not because it's a terrible thing. I just, I really wanted people's theories and opinions and like yeah, these, right. these deep and in- intellectually well thought out uh, ideas. And I had a feeling people were going to point me towards stuff like this uh, a little bit, but this just really talks about uh, what causes addictions. And then the one line that, that sticks out to me, I guess. Uh, or one little paragraph, it says, being addicted to something means not having it causes withdrawal symptoms or a come down. Because this can be unpleasant, it's easier to carry on having or doing what you crave. And so the cycle continues. And I, I, I really, I don't like that statement. One, that puts addiction completely into something that has withdrawal symptoms. I guess they're saying that like gambling and sex addiction can have withdrawal symptoms to an extent. Maybe not the uh, the physical ones we would expect from like an alcohol or, or, or a heroin. Um, but the fact that it says because it can be unpleasant, it's easier to really stresses <laughs> yeah. the choice aspect yeah. of it. And I have a hard time believing that we have a choice at some point in time. I think we lose that choice. I don't know, though. I, I know you have said you kind of believe a little bit in the choice of it to some extent.
0: Well, we are making choices when we use, you know what I mean? Like we, we make the choices that keep us stuck there or not. I mean, you know, once I was in my first rehab, going through my first 30 days of being drug free and taught about another way to do things, you know, that was a choice to go back to like, nah, I'm not willing to do that work. I'm going to just keep getting high. Um, why I made that choice and, and what, you know, mental impairment went into making that choice. I don't know. Um, but I was in my first treatment center at 17. I stayed there for 30 days. I didn't do any drugs while I was there. You know, they taught me some healthy coping skills and whatever you could learn in the 28, 30 days, whatever it was there. And, uh, when I left there, I went out and decided to get high again. Um I had been in treatment or not in treatment in uh recovery introduced to recovery. I had gotten a few months a couple different times. I've come into twelve step fellowship, get a couple months clean, go back and use again. I had made a decision that it wasn't giving me what I wanted. It wasn't doing for me what I wanted, and drugs were. so you know, I don't know for me, it seemed like there were some choices there that I made because I knew there was other options. And I had, and again, when I was in jail, I went to jail for eight or nine months and I occasionally got high in there. There was some opportunities to get high and I did, but not on any kind of regular basis. It wasn't like every day. It was like a handful of times in that eight or nine months we had the opportunity to get high. Um, And every time, you know, as soon as I got out, I went right back to drinking and getting high. Right. So I feel like those were choices. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, I can't, I
1: can't argue with that. I, I never got the 30 day clean time. Uh, I generally would stay for three to five days. And then as soon as I felt a little better, I was rolling out of any place I went to detox. Um, but I was clean and I did have a little bit of information that they tried to teach me in the haze of withdrawal. Right. Um, but I I would definitely say for me at least, and I'm just, just in listening to your story, if you tried one of these programs for 30 or 60 or 90 days and then went back, it obviously wasn't working. right? Mm-hmm. Like if it worked, if it made you feel good enough to survive without drugs or, or without that coping skill, you wouldn't have went back. Like that just sounds like common sense to me. And so the fact that you did means for whatever reason at that point in time, this other method was just not enough to sustain what you were trying to do.
0: Well, and in hindsight, it's, I mean, again, it's, it's easy to look back and see what I wasn't doing at those times, you know, and, and from the 12 step recovery model, if we're going to get into the little bit of the details, when I had come around to recovery before, I never really did like the quote unquote step work. I Mm. never got into the steps and did the work necessary to get the, what I'll say, cognitive, therapy that I needed. <laughs> right, you know, right. it was coming to meetings and hanging out with people that were clean and getting away from the old people and all that stuff worked to help me get off of drugs, but it didn't give me the tools necessary to stay off drugs. And so that's the very
1: interesting conversation I think that comes up. Uh, maybe you look at it more analytically and I look at it more spiritually. I'm not really sure about that at <laughs> all, but I, I just, a, a guess, Uh, so what is it that allowed you to work the steps when you did, right? Because I would say when the times you came and you didn't, I don't think you could have, right? I don't think it was even a possible decision for you to make, which is why you didn't. It just wasn't one of those things, whether it was because you didn't believe it would do anything. So it wasn't worth putting in the effort in something you had no belief in. It's almost like a lack of hope from my understanding, right? And then once you finally had the hope that it could work you did it and here you are. But so I, I guess that's my take on it. I don't think you could have made the decision the first couple times you were in and luckily you can't go back and prove me wrong.
0: Yeah. Uh, I was gonna say I don't know how to even <laughs> I couldn't even remember what I thought back then. Right, right. So, you know.
1: But I mean, do you have a belief that it, there's a more and you just think you just didn't choose to work the steps and you could have?
0: Oh, you always could have. Do you think I mean, so? yes. I yeah, I believe so. I believe it's just like so You know, and this kind of something we talked about this morning. Every morning I wake up, not every morning, but almost every morning, I don't want to get up. I don't want to go to, you know, go to the gym and then I come home and meditate and then I get ready for work. And every morning, like I have to remember that that is a choice that I have. I can just as easily go the fuck back to bed and sleep another hour and a half and wake up 20 minutes before work and jump in the shower and get dressed and roll out the door. And, you know, for, again, I don't know my neuroscience of why I've been making the right decision recently, but more days than not recently, I have made the decision that I'm going to fucking do it anyway. I'm going to go to the gym. I'm going to meditate. I don't want to. I don't feel like it. It's not something in me that's like, you can do it. You know, it's like, fuck this. I hate it, but I do it anyway. Um, I look at that as a choice. That is a choice that I am making to continue in this positive behavior. And
1: and I could buy into that, right? I, I think we have the ability at some points to make choices. I just think there's other times when we don't have the ability, right? Um, kind of the way it was explained to me early on in a therapy Um, part of my life was that drug use saved my life, right? Without it, I probably wouldn't be alive today because I could not deal with what was going on internally. I'd have probably just taken myself out of the world, right? Drug use was the only coping skill that got me through that point for a time. At some point in time, Whatever reason, I needed to adjust coping skills, whether it was that drugs no longer did it anymore, or it's just the consequences were too much, and I needed to find something with less consequences and so during that time, all of a sudden, I was given this ability to choose something different when I never had that choice before that. It was die or use drugs before that. Now I had this third choice, this other, right? So I did this other when it became available to me, and then Unfortunately, like that led to some addictions in other areas of my life. Even though I was not using the drugs anymore, these other addictions ended up uh causing me just as much unmanageability and pain. But without them, again, I truly believe that the options were: hey, don't be on earth anymore or participate in this addiction. And that's the only two A and Bs I had in front of me. And when C was finally presented, come to therapy and do this other thing. I took that, right? So I, it's not that I don't think that we make choices. It's just that I don't think the options open up until a certain point when we're ready or, or we've had enough or whatever it is that gives us this option C, right? I'm always choosing between A and B and A is always not being here no more. And B is the best I got to, to stay here. And so at some point, this option C opens up and I'm not even really sure what it is that makes this option C open up, but I don't hold myself accountable for not taking the option C when it wasn't there.
0: Yeah. And I I guess I think back to, so I'll pull a piece out of our literature that says, you know, and this was just my experience. This was my actual experiences. You know, we sought help through medicine, religion, and psychiatry. None of these methods was sufficient for us. Um, And I can't remember the exact words, but we continued to use until in desperation, we sought help from each other in Narcotics Anonymous. Right. So that point of desperation is a choice. Like, that's a, like, fuck, I'm finally beat enough to go do this thing that I don't want to do. That's kind of the way that I look at that. It's like, you know, when I've had enough pain, I'm willing to do the work necessary. And that to me implies there's a choice there. Hmm.
1: Okay. And I could buy that, but I guess, uh, maybe behavioral economics, uh, we, we choose things based on what makes sense and what's worth it to us. And, you know, at some point when I'm at a 70% pain level and misery with drugs, I'm not willing to do this 90% of work. Right. Yeah. And then at some point that gift of desperation, that desperate time when it goes to, Oh, I'm 95% pain level this 90% of work seems more enjoyable, right? So maybe that's why the option isn't quite on the table for me. It just doesn't weigh out to make sense for me anymore.
0: Yeah, and it's funny because I actually, is you know, part of something I share is that, you know, drugs always worked for me. You know, people, you'll hear people say drugs stopped working or right. I was just using to survive. And I, No, I loved it. I had a great time using all the way up to the end. I didn't like the consequences, you know what I mean? I didn't like the things that I had to keep doing to keep using. But, you know, it was the way that I felt when I wasn't high. It was my inability to deal with life. So I had to go through every moment being high or under the influence of something all the time. Like, that's where it became unmanageable and the insanity came from. I don't know exactly where I was going with that. but, But, you know, it was... That being high was the relief of my problems. And it only, like recovery only became a choice when the consequences of using outweighed the benefits of being high all the time. Right. Right.
1: No, that makes total sense. I I mean, I think uh, that would make the same sense for somebody who who doesn't have anything to eat, right? They don't believe in in robbing royal farms to -hmm. get something to eat. But at some point, when your hunger is enough, that becomes a justifiable thing to do is rob Royal Farms so that I can have something to eat tonight, right? I I just, I don't know that they had to, I guess they had the choice to rob Royal Farms before that, but they just didn't. I don't know. That's a really interesting one. Yeah, to get lost in
0: it. But. Yeah. And then it goes down the rabbit hole of, well, what were their other choices? And the fact that they didn't seek other choices makes it okay to rob people. Like, did they- try to reach out to a church do they try to reach out to a homeless shelter or do they just resort right to well the royal farms is a block away and that's way easier than trying to go do something else so i'm just going to do that
1: not just easier but tastier (laughs)
0: yeah it's probably better than shelter food
1: uh so to get back a little bit on track uh brazil ruby just said the devil addiction is the devil and i have I've heard this take before, and I've i, I have also possibly believed this take before for myself, uh, that addiction is the devil. Uh, it is the great evil in the world, you know, against, I, I guess the devil would definitely put it into a Christianity light. If you believe in Christianity, okay, there's God that I need to follow in recovery, or there's this addiction that is the devil, right? The great evil, the great deceiver, Um, Which kind of is fitting for the way we look at addiction a lot of times. It talks to us, makes us live in denial, lies to us, all that great stuff. What do you think about that idea?
0: So I do know, and specific people aren't going to come to mind at the moment, but there are incredibly successful people that would describe their passion or obsession for their particular uh, sport as an addiction someone like i believe michael jordan was mm. like addicted to basketball he played all the time practiced all the time it was like an obsession right now you know for him it led to it's it's almost like people that are incredibly great at certain things you almost need that drive of obsession to make you great at something right. so i don't think to to categorize addiction itself is horrible is great um, it can be useful I think um mm. it's when it we go down these self-destructive roads and self-destructive paths with things I mean I don't know maybe part of the definition of addiction has something to do with Destruction. I'm not sure. Well, and that's, maybe it's an obsession if it's not destructive and addiction when it is. <laughs> like, yeah, no, that's an interesting uh, thing.
1: And I think since we're parsing out what is addiction, maybe we should talk about that a little bit. So I agree. I, I would say there are people who are, we would look at them as addicted to positive things uh, and, and kind of the way you just described it Michael Jordan, <laughs> right? He was addicted to basketball, he played it all the goddamn time, and look how useful it was for his life. But I, I again want to question: Was it useful for his life? Did it make him a great basketball player? Absolutely. Did it make him rich and famous? Absolutely. Right? Can't argue those points. Was it good for his life? Right. That I don't know. Right? How many relationships did he sacrifice with people by being a rich, famous athlete, where all he did was play basketball and spent no time? you know interacting with other people that mattered in his life family members i don't know like i i have no clue about the quality of his life you look at somebody like uh i don't know just some of these famous people who have ended up you know taking their own lives and you say oh well they were successful it was super useful for their life to be addicted to being funny or singing or being in a band or being in movies and yet Did it really work out that well for him? Because it sure didn't seem to in the long run. Like I I can't say whether Michael Jordan had a great life because he was addicted to basketball.
0: Right. Yeah, I don't know either. But I can say that he's done tons of charity work and donated millions of dollars to helping all kinds of people around the world and in this country. Probably touched and helped more people than I could ever even begin to hope to help. (laughs) So not that it didn't necessarily, and and I'm only just, I'm, I'm playing devil's advocate here resources
1: for For, sure. (laughs) Yeah.
0: You know, I, I, I'm playing devil's advocate only to try to, uh, I don't think thinking things are evil or terrible is the best approach to them. Like it's, it's a thing that exists. And if we can learn to harness that energy and use it in a different way, You know, the for example is like when I get involved in things like, you know, we talked about Little League, like I don't just half ass haphazard into stuff. And, you know, I tend to get a little bit obsessive about it, but I don't think that's a bad quality as long as I'm aware and I'm keeping it kind of in check, like, oh, whoa, wait a minute. You're getting a little bit off the rails with this, you know, but I can harness that energy to motivate me to do things and, and pursue interests and, you know, learn Can can we keep addiction in check? I think that's a good question. If it's an addiction
1: and it's obsession and compulsion that's beyond our control, is it something that we can keep in check? And if we have the ability to keep it in check, is it no longer addiction?
0: Uh, The literature in our fellowship says we are only given a daily reprieve. So I'm given a daily reprieve by continuing to do the important things I need to do. So I think that's all we're doing is keeping it in check, you know. <laughs> I mean, that's the the way I look at it is it's always right there. It's always, right. you know, right there. And and I heard an interesting thing yesterday. So someone had talked about, you know, you'll hear people say like, "Oh, my addiction's over in the corner doing push-ups." Right. You know, so I need to keep in recovery. And I thought a little bit about that and I thought I You know, mine doesn't need to do pushups because it's a power greater than me. And just like the sun doesn't need to do pushups to be a power greater than me, like no matter what I do, it's always a power greater than me. So my addiction is always a power that's going to be greater than me. I just have to try to keep in position where it doesn't grab me, snatch me back up
1: yeah i definitely i can i see what you're saying completely i've always kind of liked the imagery of like my addictions in the parking lot doing push-ups and all mm-hmm. that just uh it seemed you know tangible to me yeah. i guess but uh you know i mean we could go further oh, yeah. maybe god's doing push-ups too right yeah, our right. higher powers doing more push-ups <laughs> he's doing weighted push-ups yeah, with right. people sitting on his back Yeah. um so yeah that's that's interesting i would say at one point i probably for sure when i was more of a believer in christianity personally um uh, The devil idea made sense. I I get what you're saying, how it doesn't really need to be evil. Look, if you were going to say, you know, Jason, you have to have addiction. Which one do you want? The one where you're like homeless and poor or the one where you're really successful at basketball (laughs) and and rich and famous? Well, yeah, obviously, like this addiction on the right sounds much better to me.
0: Well, and there are levels like we, you know, I grew up with a really good friend who his mom was every bit of what I would call a cleaning addict. Like she definitely Mm. had an obsessive compulsive uh, cleaning thing. I mean, when you went into her house, nothing was out of place. Nothing had dust on it. If you moved like a fucking figurine the wrong way, like she would know when she came in and you know, that was definitely obsessive compulsive behavior, but it never manifests into a point where it had these incredibly detrimental, obvious effects on her life
1: right all right so hopping back over to uh to facebook for some other responses people had barry said that he thought addiction began for him when he wanted to get away from authority he wanted to do what the cool people were doing uh and he he felt like he knew right from wrong but chose wrong so in a nutshell he would call addiction selfish and uh, honestly when i first read this response i thought of you and, and, and the choice idea and uh I mean, so I can I can understand some of that. Look, I I share that I wanted to be a part of something, right? I wanted to fit in. And I say I wanted to fit in anywhere because I didn't feel accepted by people. But when I look back at it, the reality is I probably could have hung out with maybe some of the more bookworm type people at a younger age in school who were smarter and into some video games and reading books and and, and some interesting things like that. And I did hang out with a couple of them from time to time, but that wasn't what I really wanted, right? I wanted to hang out with the so-called cool kids who were doing the shit that wasn't legal or right or or the stuff you would have gotten in trouble for. And so I don't know what that is that led me like, yeah, I just wanted to be accepted and validated, but why did it have to be by this certain group of people as opposed to any group of people?
0: Hmm. Yeah. I don't know that, but I mean, I think when I started using, like I really liked it, you know, (laughs) like, you know, I still, you know, I remember when I first got high and, you know, smoked some pot and I loved it. I was like, oh, I want to do this all the time. And, you know, when I drank, I had fun and, you know, my willingness to do it was because I liked it. And I think that's where the selfishness part comes in for me is that you know well i liked it i want more i'm just gonna do it right
1: see i understand it more at at the later ages of of, at the actual drug use yeah that totally makes sense why that felt good for me but like this was even long before i ever touched the drug i can remember like just gravitating to wanting to be accepted by these cooler Mm. people and not so much the other people and i don't know i just i thought that was an interesting concept i don't I hear some people say it, but it was interesting to see him as a response to what is addiction by saying. Yeah.
0: And I definitely think once I started using, I drifted towards those like those became the people that I thought were cool. Right. Um, but early on as a kid, I don't, you know, I don't know. I don't know when I had low self-esteem when that came up, <laughs> you know, right. when self is at what age are you when esteem becomes a thing? You know, like, oh, no, I can remember like
1: third grade. What? Yeah. Some acceptance I from people. Huh. Um, Kayla mentioned, uh, here you are, isn't man, you're going to friend all these people after this (laughs) podcast. Uh, She believed it was a choice, a disease of choice. In the beginning, it's a choice, but after a while, the part of your brain responsible for making choices gets hijacked and instincts take over. It's no longer a choice at that point. It's now a matter of survival. Uh, Addiction is like a disease in many ways, she put. Uh, It's a combination of all models, disease, genetic, environment, and all the factors put together end up. Being the addiction itself.
0: Yeah. And I was going to actually clarify, and I thought there would become an opportunity. And now she's kind of setting me up for my (laughs) clarification. So I believe we have choices in addiction, but once we start using, you know, once we're actively using, we lose our choice. You know, once we're impaired and under the influence of the drug, that is a power greater than us you know? And so like right now, today I have choices. If I were to go use tomorrow, that would be a choice that I make. Once I'm caught in the grips, I lose my choice. You know, mm-hmm. I my choice is gone. Right. Um, until some, you know, moment of clarity or some incarceration or, you know, jails, institutions or death is what is the ends for an addict. Right. Um, so I would agree with with part of that. And, and even, you know, when we gain some clarity back. So, you know, if you've been using drugs for years, which, you know, a lot of us had been stopping for a day or two does not clear the insanity or influence of the drugs. Like yeah. it takes days, if not weeks, <laughs> you know, to actually start to even get your brain back to functioning normal, you know, it takes a process. So
1: I don't know what we're referring to as functioning normal, but it's definitely, it can take months at all for any dopamine or receptors to fire or receive, or all these things are highly askew after you've used
0: drugs to produce all your positive good feelings. Right. And so, you know, it's a little off of that topic, but That's why it's so important when we make that decision to get clean, that we also surround ourselves with supports that are going to encourage us through those difficult times. Because that's your most critical and difficult time is when you make that, when you finally make that decision that you want to get clean, you know, you need those supports to carry you through that tough time. And so that
1: brings up a good, uh, you know, we didn't look into this and I don't know it off the top of my head. I guess I could look it up at some point. But how long does it take for the chemicals in your brain to start firing, quote unquote, normally again after you stop drug use after so many years? Like, what is the maximum amount it take that we've studied and know for sure? Because if the scientific evidence says that your brain's not going to produce its own chemicals to feel good for possibly up to six months... And your argument is that after 30 days, you had a choice. I would say the fuck you do, right? You don't have any good feelings. How the
0: fuck do you have a choice if you can't produce anything that feels good in your brain? All right. And so there was, and this could be old data. Mm-hmm. So this is from years back. But one of the methadone clinics in this area was saying that, that, for, at least from opioids, that the damage could be permanent. That for a mm-hmm. lot of people that it was permanent, which was why... You know, a methadone maintenance program was so important for life that oh, that yeah. it was a lifelong impairment of your brain. So you would have to be on maintenance, you know, forever. Um, I, for moral reasons, never agreed with that. Right. <laughs> I based that nothing on science. <laughs> right. And I don't know if that's the current data or not, but at least that was the evidence that they were citing. So you let's know. say
1: we don't believe their bullshit because it's probably not true.
0: <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> but let's
1: say we do believe that it, it could take up to a year for everything to start working right again. Does that change your opinion about having a choice after one month? Um no.
0: I no? would say no no. I mean so the way people's brain works, like so you can Still put yourself so part of the reason I think like meetings and things are important or getting the support group and things are important is because any day we're going to have a bad idea, you know, any day without the right encouragement, supports, um, you know, re uh, what do they call that where you rehear ideas again and again and again, like without getting those that constant push to keep doing the right thing, right? Any day along that path, I can decide that it's too hard and I don't want to do it anymore.
1: Yeah, you can. But I I guess my thing is if, if there is no positive reward ever for three months from doing what we're calling the right thing, right, for trying an activity and doing it and you get no positive reinforcement for that, no reward, a behavioral psychologist is going to say, why in the hell would you still do it? Of course, you're going to go back to where you know the reward is, which is
0: the drug use, right? Like, There's a quick reward there. Yeah. And I can't say for all, but I think for most addicts, just to not be using every day is its own reward. <laughs> you know, like just to not be caught up in the grips of daily active use is There's some true. reward. I right. mean, now you're probably not getting the full benefits of your f- full endocrine system, you know, (laughs) like like that may take some time, but
1: some people, some people report getting clean and feeling great immediately. Mm -hmm. Right. I just also know that Mm -hmm. some go into a deep depression immediately too. So I, I don't know. I don't know. I just think that's an interesting concept. If I have no positive reward, there is nothing psychologically that says I should stick with this. Everything says I should go back to the thing that worked. It's kind of like if I ate dirt every day, like at some point I'd be like, man, I should go back to cheeseburgers. This fucking dirt doesn't really feed me anything.
0: But I think that also makes the point that there is no one pathway of recovery, that there is no one size fits all approach to this, you know, answer to this problem (laughs) like Mm -hmm. that, you know, maybe for some people, I mean, I, again, I follow some different things on, you know facebook groups and stuff about addiction and there was a guy this morning talking about he tried methadone and had just some horrible experiences with it you know and and he wasn't against mat's he ended up going on suboxone instead you know because he wasn't against mat's just his experience with methadone was horrendous he had some physical issues with it and some everything else Hmm. um So there isn't just one answer that's going to be right for everyone all the time. Some of us need additional things. Um, Just like some of the mental impairments, depending on what drugs you did and for how long, would have to do with what your actual mental impairments are when you finally get clean. (laughs) Right, right.
1: So uh, since nobody else kind of gave me this this. You know, roundabout theory that I was really hoping for. If you're still here, now I'm going to start sharing some of my theories, right? This crazy out of the way thing. So I remember a time earlier on um, in my recovery where I started to have this idea that the thing that kept me from needing drugs was a relationship with God, right? Not a belief, a relationship with this God. And in this I hate to use the word communion because that seems so Catholic, Um, but the the communion, the, the relationship with God in that I got what I needed from that. It was almost like the umbilical cord to the baby, right? I had this umbilical cord to my higher power and I felt connected to the world. And so with that, I didn't need drugs. And so what I said uh, was that it must have been early on in creation we were much closer to God. Like we relied on him a lot more, it a lot more, the universe a lot more. We relied on being in tune with it. You look back at like older civilizations, Native Americans, uh, other civilizations that were really more in tune with the earth in general and in tune with the concept of like it's not ours. This is all about just being here and appreciating it. They didn't need any kind of drugs to, to, because of that. And so what happened over time was we've gotten all these things, which pushed us further from God, all these, you know, like almost like we're building a wall around us. Uh, Oh, I got a cell phone. I can spend time there. I don't need to have a relationship with God during that amount of time. And Oh, I'm busy getting money so that I can, you know, go on vacation. I don't need God. And I'm building this wall every time I lay a brick and the more, the higher the wall, the less I can communicate with God. And then when I'm cut off from God, Now I need drugs. And so that was like my ultimate theory. That's definitely (laughs) where addiction came from. It had to be that nothing else was right. All you other people had it wrong. (laughs) And I was sure of it for quite a long time. I can't say that I am today. I've kind of, it's evolved a little bit, but what, do you have a take? Do you ever have a theory about addiction? Like what was yours?
0: Um, Well, well, so immediately what I think, and this is probably (laughs) terrible to say, but I'm like, you do know, like the Indians did a bunch of peyote and that psychedelics have been used throughout history as a connecting source to God. Like they actually used psychedelic drugs to connect with God. Right. So in their cases, that's and addiction. And the way that we use drugs today was not a thing. Like people didn't use that way. You know, it's just not something that they did. Um, so when I first got clean, I didn't really care what addiction was. I'd spent a bunch of time trying to figure that out before I came to a 12 step group because right. I thought if I could figure out what it is, I could fix it without having to do all this woo woo horse shit. Um, and that I didn't need anyone else's help. I would figured out intellectually on my own, and that didn't work out. So when I finally got into recovery this time, I decided I didn't really care that much what it was. Um, and that I would just work the program and see what happened. And then the program, what I learned through this step work was that addiction was this physical, mental, spiritual disease, you know, all the things that they teach in our literature, that it's a physical, mental, and spiritual disease, that basically it's an obsessive compulsive disorder that is coupled with a total self-centeredness right. <laughs> and that, you know, those cognitive things, you know, cause us to use drugs excessively. Um, And as I've grown and educated myself, I would say today, if I had to put a sort of where it comes from on it, would have a lot more to do with, uh, if you go back evolutionarily, evolution, from an evolutionary perspective. um, We were communal beings like we survived based on our ability to you know support each other as a community that way back in you know caveman days and as we evolved through like we needed other people in our community i couldn't just go out and find my own cave and do what i needed on my own and provide everything for myself a a, you know t-rex would come along and eat me or whatever right and that Our survival depended on our ability to function as a whole, as what I'll call a whole, as a group, a community. And so as we evolved and got more individual independence, um, we start to separate from that group. You know, we start to think that we don't need a group of people anymore. But nowadays, especially, you know, so many of us live in these communities or these groups and we're not really connected with each other at all in any way. Nope. So we seek seek these things out. And just as a side note, I think that's where God sort of started to come in. A, it was a way to explain all the things that were happening in the universe that we had no idea what the fuck was going on, why the stars were there, why the sun moved or what any of that stuff. Right. just easier to say it was God. And then... B, like if we could just connect to this God, then we didn't need this connection with the rest of our community. We could go to our individual cubicle and do our work and do our thing. And we didn't need a a community Um, or God was the purpose of the community. So nowadays we're separating from all that. You know, we're finding that science is explaining a lot of the things that we have Mm. that, you know, we yeah, we're we're religion, you know. Is, is sort of becoming not as, as prevalent in a lot of communities. So they don't have that connection anymore. And as people drift alone into their own islands and they aren't feeling connected to their groups, we seek that outside of ourselves. And we, that our needs aren't being fulfilled by our groups. So we seek them through outside means.
1: So addiction is isolation almost. It's the pain of isolation
0: maybe? Uh Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's a TED Talk about it. The guy, his name's Johan Hari, and he kind of, he probably explains it better than I just did, but it's the opposite of addiction is connection, you know, and it's right. if we can reconnect with a group, if we can establish our our purpose within our communities, that brings meaning and purpose to our lives, which drives us to want to be better, you know, is the idea. I buy into a lot of that.
1: So, and, and I think a lot of the theories I've had over the course of my life have definitely stemmed around the idea of connection, right? It might've started with the idea of connection to God kind of built in or evolved into something more along the lines of what you just mentioned of connection to just everything, right? Mm -hmm. Whether that's, that's connection with the food I eat and the process of how it gets to my plate connection with people connection with some higher power that exists in a universe, whatever that may be like, it was all about this connection to things. And I think that is a huge piece of, addiction is the lack of connection. I still haven't figured out if that's the cause or if that's just a byproduct of what comes with it. Um, but it does tie in a lot to the the aspect of fighting it
0: is to reconnect. Um, and I'll say for me, too, a part of, you know, when we talk about the community, like connecting to the community, for me personally... I think the environment and nature and all our immediate surroundings are a part of that. Like when I say community, I personally don't just mean like the people like within our community, like other living beings should be considered a part of our community, in my opinion.
1: No, I'm Um, with you. I'm with you. I think one of the more recent thoughts I had about addiction and where it might come from uh, is the idea that people used to not have time. Right. Like it used to be that we basically spent every waking minute of our life in survival. Right. Mm -hmm. Whether it was avoiding, you know, what's out there that might get me, or God, I need to keep walking all day today to find enough berries to you know eat to stay alive. Like it was all about survival. Even when we moved into farming, oh, I gotta farm all day in order to make enough for us to live, right? And as we've had all these modern technologies and and inventions we no longer need to spend our entire days living in survival right we're no longer that close to death as we used to be there's no longer the tiger waiting around the corner that might get me and so it's kind of like the theory of uh without sadness i couldn't be happy right without pain i couldn't feel joy like these kind of concepts and I, i totally believe in that like if joy is the only thing that exists or pleasure is the only thing that exists it's not really that pleasurable anymore. It's just what is. So you kind of need the, the bad, what we call bad feelings in order to feel the good feelings. Um, And so basically the idea is we can't feel alive because we're not close to death. Like we used to be right. Like we used to always be on the verge of fuck, we might die today. And so that allowed us to feel very, very in touch with feeling alive. And without that, we're very numb and bored and depressed and fucking out of our minds. Right. We got all this time to think that we're not spending staying alive and just think about all kind of pontificate on all these right. subjects. And we have a podcast cause right. we're not close to death. Right. Um, and due to that drugs kind of made us feel alive, right. Yeah. They get things going.
0: And, uh, I, it's funny. I was thinking of that recently as far as like traveling, um, You know, I think sedentary lifestyle has a lot to do with and when I say sedentary, I just don't mean people that sit at a desk all day. I mean, actually having a house and staying in the same area for 20 Mm -hmm. years, like how much more interesting do you think life was when you had to move with the seasons? Like, oh, shit, it's getting cold. We got to pack up and start heading south. (laughs) And then you get to go, like, check out some new stuff. You're not looking at the same goddamn tree every day. You're not looking at the same, you know, hilltop. Because being in the same area all the time, day in day out, the the majestic nature of the forest, you know, just becomes a bunch of fucking trees when you've driven past it for thirty years. Right, you know, it's right. just it's just the same old trees. I mean, we we live right near a state park out the end of you know a road out here, Elk Neck State Park, that people travel all from all over the place to come see. And, you know, for us, it's like, this is a bunch of fucking trees with a lighthouse. Like, it's right. cool to walk out there every now and again, but it's not as majestic because we're here all the time.
1: Right. Right. No, I totally agree with what you're saying. I, th- I was laughing because I asked somebody the other day if, if fish swam south for winter, <laughs> the, same way the birds fly <laughs> yeah. south. But maybe we do. Maybe as humans, we need to, you know, drive or walk south for winter.
0: Yeah. Once we had uh what do they call it? Agriculture and developed farming and we were able to settle into certain areas our lives started to get boring. you know? Yeah.
1: Yeah. So maybe it's, I don't know, maybe addiction is just a lack of being alive, a lack of feeling life in us. Right. And it kind of ties in. We talk about addiction a lot of times as a mental health aspect of it. And, you know, we had to do all this work all day long to stay alive. And so we didn't have as much time really to think about all these grand concepts that we do, which is neat. But at the same time, I think a lot of mental health is the process of overthinking things and being too in our minds, right? Huh. And it's almost like we, we say people are crazy, they're out of their minds, but I, I almost want to tell clients, like, get the fuck out of your mind, right? Get out of your yeah, mind yeah, as often yeah, right. as possible because it's a dangerous place to be. We just wander around in there and, and and work ourselves up on all these ideas with anxiety and depression and and substance use, and it's all about being stuck in the mind. Maybe the, the mental health is to not be in the mental. So, yeah.
0: And that's exactly to me, my understanding of meditation. Like that's exactly the purpose of meditation for me is a a sort of, not necessarily a break from my mind, but to just recognize, like, I don't need to be caught up in there all the time. I don't need to be up in there thinking and thinking and rationalizing and theorizing. Like I can sort of step away from that and get a break from that and not take all that shit so seriously. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's a part of a 12-step fellowship. You know what I mean? It's fucking meditation is in the goddamn steps. Like, <laughs> that's how critical they think that is right. to the process of recovery, you know, to do what I believe is exactly what you're saying.
1: <laughs> right. So, I, I don't know. I think that's my my grand theory for the moment, and I'm sticking with it, that uh, addiction is a lack of being close to
0: death. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. So, maybe we should all go be closer to death yeah. and we'll feel alive and we won't have to get out. Become a free rock climber or a, some sort of mountain hiker, and you know, see if you still want to use. <laughs> that's <shit's> just scary. Yeah, <laughs> right. want to do any of that? Yeah, I don't actually want to die.
1: Right, right. <laughs> like, to be kind of feel like I
0: might die. Yeah, you know, right.
1: Really be there. Uh, so I don't know. You got anything else for what is addiction? No,
0: what? I'm pretty good on that.
1: <laughs> All right. Uh, we will see you again next week for something else that's great and wonderful. I hope you have an awesome week. That wraps up this episode. Please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on your preferred platform. If you have ideas for topics you'd like us to talk about or just want to add an opinion, contact us through Anchor, email us at recoverysortof at gmail.com, or find us on Twitter at recoverysortof.